Well, we're in a new sermon series uh, on Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 4, entitled Pleading the Fifth. We are calling it that because uh, there is um, a courtroom nature to the language that Paul brings to the letter. And there is also, in, in the four chapters that we're going to be spending time in, a persistent question that he's going to be kind of getting to the bottom on, which is, do you as a person really have a defense that you can bring before the Lord? And he's going to ultimately bring us to the point where we have to confess we really have in and of ourselves no defense. We, we might as well not even open our mouths. We should plead the fifth. In fact, it's Paul pleading for us to take the fifth is what he's doing as we try to stand uprightly before the Lord. And so we're going to be exploring that uh, along the way. And again, we're just doing the first four chapters, otherwise we'd, we'd be here for a long time. Uh, but we'll be progressing through these chapters trying to understand righteousness. What is righteousness? What does it mean to stand up right before, before God? And so if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at the introduction to the letter this morning. I think it's page 780 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. And we're looking at the introduction, and the, the introduction, it, introduction messages are always hard when you're looking at it because the introductions, no matter what the letter is about, they follow a common format, and they're very kind. So even uh, to the church in Corinth where Paul's going to kind of put on the brass knuckles, if you did the introduction, it would be so kind. And here, he's not, there's, he's not upset with the church in Rome at all, but the subject matter that we're about to get to starting next Sunday is so heavy and so serious and so to the point, um, but it doesn't really show up in the introductory statements very much. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do is try to have an eight-week memory of kind of Paul's demeanor in the introduction and remind yourself when it feels like uh, when it feels very rough in these upcoming weeks, remind yourself that Paul is telling us this, the word, God is, God is telling us this for our good so that we might know that God loves us. Um, so if you can just walk away from uh, this morning with that, if you can have kind of an eight-week timer on that, um, I think it'll serve you well. Well, before I begin to read, I just want to tell you a little bit about the church in Rome uh, as we can understand it, both from what Scripture says and what we've put together with what we know from history. So the first thing uh, that's worth noting about the church in Rome or the churches in Rome, there were more than one almost certainly, is that it, it, it predates Paul's missionary visit. The church did not need Paul. It, 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 it it started on its own and ran without Paul, or for that matter, without any known big-name apostle. We don't know who planted the church in, Paul, in church in Rome. In fact, it could have been a regular family like you or me. It could have been some regular person who planted the church in Rome, which makes, which makes it, it very intriguing and encouraging to the church at large that such a significant church could have happened through... Uh, Regular folk. And in fact, one of the, the best, probably the, the most preferred opinion about how did the church in Rome get its start was at Pentecost. That 
you know, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down and the apostles began to preach at Pentecost, a lot of people heard, well, Pentecost was an international holiday for the Jewish nation. So Jews from all over the world would converge on Jerusalem at Pentecost to celebrate, and it was there that they heard the message. So in Acts 2, when we hear the 3,000 were added to the number that day, almost certainly a large number of the 3,000 were not from Jerusalem, but were, in fact, going to leave again and go back home. And many think that that's where the first believers in the church of Rome found Christ, is they were there for Pentecost and for however long they could stay beneath the apostles' teaching, you know, whether it's a week or two weeks or a month, and then they returned back to Rome and started a church, almost certainly in the synagogues. They, they met in the synagogues and they brought, remember, the faith started as purely Jewish. And so they went back to their synagogues, you would presume, and they would say in their synagogues, hey, there's this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you about him. And that's how the church took root in Rome. There is an occasion in secular history, in just extant history, that we find some record of this. There's a man, his name is Suetonius. He's writing the history of Claudius, Emperor Claudius, who was uh, reigning. He was the leading emperor in Rome uh, around 50 AD, in the 40s and 50s. And uh, Suetonius writes in his history that at one point, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from, from Rome. He said, I've had enough of you, get out of Rome. And he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And the reason that Suetonius gives is that among the Jews in Rome, they were rioting among themselves over a man they called Crestus. So he spells it wrong, but most historians think he's talking about Christ. Christus. He says Crestus. So what we see there is in 49 AD, that already there's the, the, the Christian faction in the churches in Rome has grown enough that, that the resolvedly Jewish side is, is now coming to a head on it. And, and finally, Claudius kicks them all out. They leave. That's when, uh, in Acts 18, verse 2, it validates this part of history because it says that Aquila and Priscilla, remember Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, it says Aquila was a Jew, and he was a Roman Jew, but he had to leave because Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. That's what it says in Acts 18.2. So that matches. So you get the sense that families like Aquila and Priscilla and all these other Christian families were living out the faith on their own in Rome without any apostolic oversight, without, I mean, without the New Testament, certainly. It's quite, I'm quite proud of that, actually, to think, you know, it reminds, it, it should remind us, God's church will prevail, and all of it need, all it needs is regular folk, it needs regular people. And so even as we read through this introduction, you will hear, I, I think, um, Paul conveyed a little more dignity and admiration for the church in Rome than maybe we, we might normally even expect to hear him share. And I think because that church might have been uh, 20 years old by the time Paul gets a chance to write the letter. Okay, let's look at the first six verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the 
gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith, from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, let's stop there. This introduction, uh, this is really one long sentence. Now, in the NIV, they throw a couple periods in just to help us. But it is really, uh, in other translations, one through six is one long sentence and has a classic kind of Greek format. uh, This time in the Greek, they love to kind of attach clauses to clauses to clauses. We, in the English, we cannot stand this. We want to know a sentence and then move on, put it behind us. But they build, they rhythmically build with these subordinate clauses. And that's that's what's happening here. And so I want to walk through it a little slower. And uh, just so that we don't allow the words to kind of pass through us and and leave us here. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to tell you, he's going to say something, and he'll that something will kind of end on a thought, and he'll grab that thought, and he'll kind of remember like the old typewriter. You type, and you'd hit the end, ching, and it would. Do you all know what a typewriter is? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Right. It would go, and it would go all the way back. He kind of, this is what the Greek clauses do, is they'll take a thought all the way to the end, and cha-ching, and he grabs that thought, and he brings it all the way back, and he builds that thought out, and it goes through a thought, and cha-ching, and he's going to come back, and he's doing all this, and all of this is going to ultimately come right back up to the top. That's kind of the motion of what's happening here. So, so watch what he says. He says, Paul, and then he describes Paul. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. So that is the description of Paul, okay? And it ends on this idea of the gospel of God, which he then kind of takes, and now he puts to the bottom and begins to talk about it. In verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. And he gets to the son, and he stops, and he, he takes that idea to the bottom. And he says, the son who, according to his human flesh, his human nature, grew up in the line of David, and according to the Holy Spirit, was declared to be the son of God through his resurrection and his power. And he takes that and he says, therefore, he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Okay, which kind of connects to the top, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So all of that is there. So in other words, Paul is saying Paul is an apostle. He's a servant or slave of Christ. And he's been set apart for the gospel. This gospel is the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who in his human nature is in the line of David and spiritual nature is proclaimed to be the Son of God through his resurrection. This is Christ the Lord that he's talking about. That's essentially what the first five verses are saying. And then, or the first four, and then the fifth verse says, this Christ, and for his name's sake, Paul was called to be an apostle. And he's called to be an apostle to the Gentile world. That's the non-Jewish world. That's everybody who's not Jewish. So Paul has been called to that world to call them to obedience, which comes through faith. And Paul ends by saying, and you in Rome, you're among these people. You're among these these Gentiles. The 
this is very Pauline, we might say. It's typical of Paul to uh, describe himself this way, a servant of Christ, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. We could say that's particular to Paul. We could say that all of us, none of us are Paul, but that in, in one sense, this is true about anyone who's in Christ. It's not true that we're all apostles, but the basic, the basic introductory idea is, tr- is generally true about anyone who claims to be in Jesus Christ. You could put any name in place of Paul here at some level and say, Fred, right? if he's in Christ, he's a servant of Christ, he's been, he has been called with a message of Christ, maybe not to be an apostle, but he's been given this message and has at some level and in some way been set apart with the gospel. We are a kingdom of priests, or a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Why? Because the Gentile world, the world does not know about Jesus, and we have this message. So it's generally true about us. And likewise, we'd say this message This message that we have, we're calling a gospel. Gospel means good news. This good news message that we have is for the Gentile world, and it's from God, and it's foretold in the scriptures through the prophets and all the holy scriptures, and it's about a son. It's not about a thing. It's about a son. This is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is different from all other sorts of good news that compete, right? Every religion has some version of good news. Even a secular ideology has good news. Even if you think that all you were is kind of random coalescing of kind of atomic matter that has kind of spun and created you and that there's nothing after you, your good news is whoop it up now because it all ends. Get as much as you can now. Every, every worldview has its version of good news. And the version of good news that's the Christian worldview is that the good news is anchored on a person, Jesus. So we're generally called to be a servant or slave of Christ. We're called with this message and we're set apart for the gospel. And this gospel is pertaining to God's son and God's son is through his human nature, the son of David, child of David, and through his heavenly nature is known to be the son of God through his resurrection. And we're called to proclaim that. Paul's saying it about himself, but I think we should remember it about ourselves especially as it relates to what Paul's going to say in the upcoming weeks. Well, from there, he he gives his greeting. He says, To all in Rome, this is verse 7, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 makes us think that he's not writing to a person or to a church, but rather there's a collection of churches in Rome, and he's writing to all of them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you his introductory remarks, verses 8 through 13. And 8 through 13, um, I'm not going to say much about them. I think I'm just going to let them sit. But what I'm going to ask you to do is, is to try to receive or take or harvest um, Paul's love for this church because he's going to say hard things. He's not saying hard things about their church. He's just going to give, he's going to, he's going to start deriving the gospel next week in a very hard, fundamentally difficult place. I'll say it this way. If you have people you love in your life 
who reject God next Sunday is a hard place to start. So Paul, who loves people, who, as we read 8 through 13, what I'm asking you to do is remember, remind yourself that Paul has an empirical love for people and that God has given him a special calling to people who did not grow up Jewish, did not grow up in the faith, but that his calling is especially to bring the news to people who don't know God, that that motivates Paul's entire life. Like next week, he's going to start at the hardest starting point. So just hold on, like, hold on tightly. This is like you're going to get on a roller coaster. And you know when it starts to go up the hill, clack, 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 that gets nervous. I mean, I like roller coasters, but I like that, that butterfly feeling of the clack, clack, clack. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes you're right out the chute and you're up the hill. But sometimes you're not right out, you're not right up the hill. You kind of leave the gate and you go down this little meandery turny thing you know, it's just calm. It's like, oh, this isn't that bad. That's what this is. Okay, you're doing this, and it's about to go clack, 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 clack. Okay, so just take the meander while you can. Uh, so just listen. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now that at last, my God's will, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Okay, let's stop there. The only thing I want to emphasize before we move on is Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles. And this is not, and we'll see this in a moment, this is not because he's rejecting the Jews. It's that this is the way that God's called him. In fact, when you see Paul's initial missionary journeys, he always starts in the synagogue. It's, it's almost as, you know, this is not said in Scripture, but it's, I've always wondered in Scripture if he had to derive his calling to the Gentiles the hard way, because he'd go from synagogue to synagogue, and he would share, and his brethren would not receive, and he'd get you know, cast out or castigated or, or kind of sent away, and he would go away, and yet following him would be a few God-fearing Gentiles, kind of people who were attracted to the Jewish God but were not fully Jewish, and they would come along and he would turn around and receive whoever came. And that happened not once or twice. It happened in missionary journey after missionary journey until I think at last Paul realizes, I am, God has made me to bring the gospel throughout the world. But by this point, he he owns this idea of Not that he doesn't desire it for his brothers. In fact, later on in the book of Romans, he yearns that his Jewish brothers would receive Christ. But this is what God's called him to. 
And he begins to unpack this a little bit in the next two verses. He says this, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So Paul describes his ministry, his apostleship as one to the Gentile world. That's the first thing he's kind of set up. He's said it a couple times already. And then in 14 and 15, he begins to describe the scope of his calling among the Gentiles. And the scope that he uses, he uses his phrase Greek and non-Greek. Some of your Bibles may actually say Greek and barbarian is what it would say. Because here, normally, Paul will kind of put Greek in opposition to Jew. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Normally, it's Greek is used to mean Gentile. Here, Greek and non-Greek, since he's already talking about Gentiles, what he's really referring to is, I'm called to the civilized world and the uncivilized world, is essentially what he's saying. He's bounding, he's bounding that, that my calling to the Gentiles is for the Greek or the civilized, we might say like the first world, and to the third world. That, that's the idea that's being expressed here. And again, some of your Bibles will say, I, I, I'm called obligated to preach the gospel to the Greeks as to the barbarians. And likewise, he says, to the wise as to the foolish, to those who you know, are considering themselves wise and to the simple folk. In other words, what Paul's saying is, I'm called to the Gentiles, but if you want to bound that, like, I'm called to everyone. There's no bounds to the gospel. And he yearns to come to Rome because Rome presumably has all of this going on. And I think that there on the 15th verse ends the introduction. What I mean to say is this is really one of the last times you'll ever even hear of the Church of Rome again. I mean, it's as though right here, Paul's in a submarine and he's about to go under. And it's just, it's going to become pure theology uh, until he comes up for air in the 16th chapter. It's, it, I mean, he's really leaving the context of the Roman churches now. And he's now turning his mind to what do I need to tell these believers who have never had apostolic oversight, who've never had these things, what do I need to convey to them about Christ? And this is what he says. And we'll, we'll keep our focus on just 16 and 17 for the remainder of the morning. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I believe that this phrase, uh, the 17th verse, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I believe that is the theme of the book of Romans. That's ultimately what Paul's trying to convey and trying to teach is the relationship of righteousness to faith. That's ultimately what what he's trying to do. But on the way to doing that, he starts with this stark, startling phrase, which is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which, I mean, I, I, I think it jumps out at us. 
in the scripture. I, I certainly don't see it coming. Every time I read this, no matter how many times I read this, verses 14 and 15 do not hint of verses 16. And some theologians have thought he must be being rhetorical here because why would he say such a thing? In fact, some theologians, and this, I think it's, they've been academic too long to say this. They'll say, like, how can he possibly say I'm not ashamed of the gospel? He said, they say, who, who would be ashamed of the gospel? To which I want to reply, that is something that only somebody with an unapplied faith would say. What I'm saying is, is I'm always dealing with shame in the gospel. Every circle that I'm with, except for this one, right, where we all are in, but, you know, but when I'm outside of this circle, I am regularly confronted with situations that apply shame to me as it relates to the gospel, and force me to make decisions. And when I say shame, I mean disappointing shyness, reticence to say what I ought to say, or the knowledge that I didn't say something and the confusion in my soul as did I not say it as the product of wisdom or did I not say it because of fear? And the fact that I'm not Christian enough to be able to know because shame is alive somewhere, somehow in me as it relates to the gospel. This is what I mean to say, is when I'm with the moral crowd, okay, people who are very moral, who do good things, and the subject of Jesus Christ comes up, and they say to me something to the effect of, are you actually going to, and they do this, they'll look down their nose, right, through their glasses, and they say, you're actually going to tell me that Aunt Betty who did all of these good things is burning in hell because she didn't know Jesus Christ and that Hitler, the old Hitler, and that Hitler, if he asked for forgiveness, could be in heaven? To which I deal with shame. Like, I know the right answer. It's just so hard to get it out. And I don't say it like Paul says it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And listen, I'm not, again, I'm trying to separate that shy, shamey, cowardice reticence from you thoughtfully and strategically trying to care for a friend on the way to the gospel. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not trying to make you into some kind of evangelistic wrecking ball. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to say is, is in every corner that I go, shame shows up. When I'm in the circle, the, the progressive circle, the circle that would want to talk about different ways to the same place. The circle that would say, really, you know, what the, this person is over here is trying to do, and this person, really, what can't you just see it all? And when they have such fine-sounding arguments that just whisper into my ears about, about look, look at how loving that community is, and look at all the bad things your community's done, and look at this, and when they start to kind of shower you with the historical hypocrisy that so often comes, it just beleaguers my, I feel beleaguered with shame over the gospel. 
To which they kind of look at me over their eyes and they're going to say, are you really serious when you say, you're actually going to say to me that there is no way to the Father but through the Son? Are you going to say that? When I'm with my immoral crowd, of whom I have many friends, who their escape hatch to the question of righteousness is to reject the source of righteousness entirely. So they'll say, everybody has a personal kind of a personal good. The goal is to be true to yourself. And the last thing you should do is try to impose your set of beliefs on me. Like that is the only empirical, observable truth in the universe is the sin of imposition. Like, how could you do that? Like, my, this is what feels right to me. Don't I have the right to be happy? The hyper-moral libertarian position. And they're going to say to me, are you actually going to stare at me and say that unless I worship your God, that I'm going to go to your hell? I know I cannot be the only one who deals with shame. The only one who's trying to find a smarter way to say it. The only one who walks away going, ah, like, I wasn't all wrong, but I wasn't all right either. You know, where in that balance of the more truthful I get, the less loving I get, so I rein back the truth because I don't want to slam them because they might not come to Jesus for crying out loud if I don't if I don't tell them the truth because if they heard it they might not come I know I cannot be the only one who says what I'll do is I'll 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 help I'll gently caress their lie so that maybe I can steer it and corral it towards the truth one day maybe This is what Paul says. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of every man. That's what he says. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. This is Paul's introduction to, Paul is saying to you, I actually believe what I say I believe. That's what this, the rest of the book that's gonna unfold is gonna feel so hard And all of your arguments about what about the African in the dark jungle who never heard, you're going to just feel the theological hand of conclusiveness of Paul fall on that because he is not ashamed of the gospel. We want to create all these avenues of faith. We have one way to get to Christ, but we have a lot of little tunnels that we dig along the way just so that our aunt can get there and the unnamed righteous person who doesn't really exist anywhere in the world can maybe get there, and Paul says, how about we do this? How about we actually believe what we say we believe and just say it? Which is, the power of salvation comes only for God and is for everyone, but it is through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the awkward thing about that. The consequences of believing that, really believing that, force us to be evangelistic. So when you have, when you truly believe what God says about himself, you exit out of the closet of shame 
and you enter into a world where you understand the consequences of people not knowing who Jesus is. This is what motivates Paul to walk into town after town after town after town of people who have never heard of the name of Jesus and saying, hey, I want to introduce you to someone. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He doesn't do that once or twice. He makes it his life aspiration and goal to be a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He does this from town to town to town. It is the same conviction in him that when they reject him in town after town after town after town, he turns around and says, okay, I'll go to another town. Why? Because he's not personally attached to the failure of the message. Whereas you know you have shame when you are. When their receptivity of the message is linked to you. Paul says in 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. He says it's from faith by faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'll close with this thought. Every single competing religious worldview, right? we're made to be, people say we have religion wired in us, and I believe that's true. And in that, part of that is the notion of righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? This, C.S. Lewis called it a mysterious oughtness about us. We know how things ought to be. And everybody, every religious community has their different answer for righteousness. And this religious community would say, there's many gods, satisfy and ingratiate yourself to them all. That is righteousness. And this one would say, there's only one God, follow his law. That is righteousness. And this one over here would say, this God is angry at the world. Obey what the cleric says. That is righteousness. Jesus does not say that righteousness is found by being moral. They do. All of these faiths have this moral code as to what is righteousness. You need to do this. You need to be this. You know what the word says to us? It says that through God, a righteousness has been revealed to us. Meaning that through faith, we're given righteousness. That is what the Christian, that's why the Christian faith is absolutely exclusive. It's the only faith that says we are not righteous. It comes to us as a gift through faith. Everywhere else, you're trying to slowly assemble a case of righteousness. You know you're going to go to some cosmic judge and some cosmic throne and you have to give some cosmic answer. And at the very least, you want to be better than the cosmic person who went before you and is one who's coming after you. You at least want to be just a little bit better. And the Christian case for righteousness is, I have no argument at all. I simply believe in Christ. The Christian argument of faith is to plead the fifth before God. We cannot make a case for righteousness. And here Paul says this, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For seven more weeks, we're going to figure this out together. It is right to be theologically careful because ideas have consequences. And we are called and set apart for the gospel of God.